0: Hi, everybody. Welcome on the Lights on Data show. The show where we put the lights on... Data. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And today we will talk about cybersecurity.
1: And I have the pleasure of introducing our today's guest as always. Our today's guest is a recognized industry expert, speaker, and leader who enjoys the pursuit of achieving optimal cybersecurity, which is also our topic for today. He is a strategic security expert with... 30 years of experience in his field. He thrives in challenging cybersecurity environments and in the face of every shifting threats. And in order to address these challenges and these threats, he builds mature security organizations. His amazing work protects billions of dollars from companies. And he's cited in news, in magazines, in books, and has more than 190,000 followers. Everyone, please welcome Matthew Rosenquist.
2: Hi Matthew. Matthew, Thanks you're on YouTube and
1: we really want to hear you.
2: Good morning all. Thanks for having me.
1: Good morning, Matthew. I have a question for you. How long did it take for you to have so many followers?
2: I don't know. Um, You know, when I joined LinkedIn and started doing the blogging program, they just people started to, to, you know, follow. And I think it probably took three or four years. Um, Mm. I wasn't really tracking it very much. And people started, you know, colleagues started saying, you have a lot of followers. And (laughs) I didn't think about the numbers. Um, But, yeah, probably three or four Mm. years.
1: So it happened organically, which I think is the best way to do it. I think some, uh, some of us. Uh, think or ask themselves before okay what should i do in order to get followers whereas for you it was the other way around let me share my experience and my um, advice and then uh, people just happen to to come along which is great you know i i looked it up and i think the hashtag cybersecurity has around half a million followers and i don't know if that's a lot or not that much what do you think
2: I don't know, um, <laughs> to be honest. And and our industry has gone through transformation. So, uh, you know, it used to be called information security and it still is. So if you search InfoSec or information security, you're going to see a whole mm. bunch of other, you know, followers and there's overlap. Now cybersecurity is is a popular and common term, especially as the evolution kind of includes the privacy aspects and now the safety aspects. So it's we're in a, you know, work in progress. Enough.
1: I like sure. cybersecurity more. Uh, sure. You told us a little bit um, about your journey before uh, the show. So how you started and uh, what got you to cybersecurity. Can I just share with, with our audience as well? I found it very interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, more than thirty years ago, I actually started working for uh, in the in the private sector, working for a Fortune 500 company and doing uh, investigations for theft, embezzlement, uh, fraudulent uh, transactions, activities, um, even a little bit of counterfeiting stuff. So, doing investigations and and arresting externals and internals employees, so and so on and so forth for embezzlement. Uh, Worked on a great team and. One of the things that struck me about that is the adversarial nature, right? Mm -hmm. There's an intelligent adversary and and they're doing things for whatever motivations. And sometimes it's, you know, pure malice. Other times it's out of desperation. Sometimes it's even out of boredom. But, you know, it's an an intelligent adversary and you're trying to detect them, trying to gather enough evidence, right, um, to be able to prosecute or, or take some action and that challenge that struggle and some people call it a dance uh some people call it warfare but they adapt and you have to adapt that really kind of hooked me um it's it's an amazing challenge versus static type of um issues that you'd work Mm -hmm. with and i paired that with my other passion which is technology and then back 30 years ago there wasn't cybersecurity. In fact, it wasn't even called information security back then. Um, and cybersecurity then was a dead-end field. There was no upper mobility, there were very few positions, but I had that passion for it. And blending those two things, the technology and you know dealing with intelligent adversaries, it, it was just right for me. And so I dove into it. And nowadays, cybersecurity is a much uh, bigger field, much uh, uh, better from a, a career perspective. But I got involved when it was a dead-end field, and I loved mm-hmm. it. And there hasn't been a day that I haven't woken up in the morning and just been excited to figure out what's new, what's changing, how do I have to adapt, how do we all have to get better? It's wow. It's a great... Profession. I now think.
1: I want to work in cybersecurity. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: know, right? It's, yeah, it's you're, so you're inspiring. So passionately motivating. About
1: it. I'm like, this is the thing to do in life <laughs> in order for life to have meaning <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, you said a little bit about career, and I wanted to ask um, if someone would like to start a career in cybersecurity, what would be the more, let's say, traditional path?
2: Well, you know, there's many different paths because cybersecurity is not just one field. Cybersecurity touches anywhere that there's digital technology. So there's room for heavy technologists, coders, programmers. There's room for engineers and architects for hardware or software or services. There's room for project and program managers. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Leadership roles, yes. Um, HR experts, legal experts, finance experts. Yes, yes, yes. So (laughs) there are many intersections. Um, Many of the typical paths for people that come into the industry is they're either going to a university or they're going through some type of higher education. That's a great path. Another path is for somebody that maybe doesn't want to do that, but wants to get certifications. And we've got tons of different certifications within the industry that are very valuable and very respected. Okay, sure, right? Go down and get certifications. We have people that simply decide, you know what? I like to tinker with things. I like to hack things and, and tear them apart and put them together and make them do things that they don't normally do. That actually is a great path as well. Uh, You know, we've got white hat hackers, the ones that are doing it for good. Uh, Great, you know, that is a a great path into the industry as well. And other ones, we just find people that are very competent in, again, any of those areas, any of those domains, and decide, you know what, I want to apply that to the cybersecurity field. Great, welcome. We welcome you with open arms. Um, right now, there are several million open positions in wow. cybersecurity, wow. and wow. they tend to pay between thirty or fifty percent more than the than the comparable IT roles that are out there. So, supply and demand, right? There's very little uh, supply, a lot of demand, and that really raises the the compensation. But there's yeah, also stresses too. So there's <laughs> Oh,
0: I'm sure. I would imagine, uh, you know, especially in your position as chief information security officer, which is not a title that you encounter as often as you think one should, but I would imagine it's a lot of uh, stressful situations as well, a lot of pressure.
1: I'm just wondering how many people what CSO it, know how s- what CSO means. Do you think they know? Chief security yeah, officer? Yeah, but do you hmm. think people know? That, that maybe they do. I don't know.
2: <laughs> yeah. Chief security so what- officer you know, evolved earlier and it had to do with the physical security. And then you had chief information security officer that de- deals more with the information and the networks and the digital side of the house. We're actually seeing a, a convergence between those two roles in the industry where you, you some corporations and organizations have a unified person that's responsible both for the physical as well as the digital security. So there's there's a whole spectrum there as well.
0: I I wanna I wanna put up this this one question uh, to start. People are still chiming in here, uh, so thank you everybody for joining us. Let me just bring it up, just as a fun fun little activity here, uh, that I got from this IBM white paper that was released in about November or so uh, last year, 2020. So question is, the average time to identify a breach in 2020 was A, 31 days, B, 107 days, which is a lot, C, 207 days. And, you know, we'll just put it up there. If you're watching this as a recording, well, you'll definitely see the answer. Uh, But take a mental guess. What do you think it is? And I got to say, maybe this will give it away, but I was surprised by the answer,
2: <laughs> and which is 207 days.
1: <clears throat> Does that sound and this though- is hugely
2: relevant. Think about somebody coming into your house and you not detecting that they're there for 207 days. That's a long time, that's, a long time a long for... Time an adversary to be rummaging around your house, your data, your information, potentially watching what you do, who, who you're communicating with, and potentially doing damage that entire time. And that's what we're facing in the industry. Somebody is coming into our networks, our databases, our systems, and that becomes a problem, right? We yeah. need to be able to detect them and evict them much faster. In the industry, well... We have challenges because, again, Mm -hmm. that intelligent adversary, they are working very hard to remain stealthy. They don't want to be detected and evicted. So that's where that challenge comes in.
1: So do you have to work nights sometimes? Yeah, I mean, the
2: the ongoing joke is for a CISO, we never sleep. Um, (laughs) There's constant fires throughout the day, throughout the night, Uh, text messages, you know, urgent things that go on. The hackers never sleep and they're global, so they work 24 hours a day around the world and you have to be prepared as a CISO to deal with that. Um, There aren't working hours for the attackers. They're always there.
1: So you're like a detective, basically.
2: (laughs) Yes, a detective, a firefighter, sure, yes. All of those emergency (laughs) services, Uh, sometimes a paramedic that you're trying to just keep things alive. Yes.
1: So how does does a typical day look like, or there's no no such thing as a typical day?
2: For Depending on what role you have within cybersecurity, Hmm. your day is going to be different. The objectives, the goals that you have, the tools that you use are going to be different. In fact, they're probably going to significantly change at least every 18 months. But uh, there's that much chaos within our world. But a lot of at the CISO role, a lot of it is setting the strategy and goals, understanding what fires are currently going on and orchestrating the efforts to put them out, Um, developing plans and strategies and gathering resources so that you are prepared for the next evolution of change and you really want to kind of be proactive. That's the best position to be in is to be proactive versus constantly reactive Mm -hmm. Um, It's a better utilization of resources and and everything else. You you tend to burn out people less quickly uh, when you're proactive. Uh, So, you know, it's a lot about communication and teamwork within your organization and even outside your organization. Because within your microcosm, you don't see everything. You don't understand everything. It's very important to reach out and work with colleagues to understand what they're seeing, what are their best practices? What failures did they make so you can avoid that? Everything moves very, very quickly. So, so Matthew, teamwork is are, important.
0: Are there yeah. dedicated forums or groups that yeah. uh, you know cybersecurity experts mm-hmm. such as yourself take part of, or they're just a bit more informal and just through working relationships you start developing those connections?
2: It's a combination of both. There, you know, if you go back about 15 years ago or 20 years ago even, um, nobody shared anything. Nobody even wanted to talk about, you know if they got breached or if there was a, an attack. That was common practice. And so nobody shared, shared any information. Mm. Um, and we saw an evolution where people did start to communicate. And first it was anonymous. And, and one of the big first reports that came out was Verizon's uh, data breach, the DBIR, which you know was, was kind of a Bible back then because it was the first report that actually gathered real data, actuals of what kind of attacks were happening. That opened a floodgate where people did start communicating quietly in the background. Right, Chatham House rules, you would call a a colleague and, you know, okay, I'm going to share information with you back and forth. And slowly that began to expand. And we do now have some forums out there where CISOs gather and they're willing to share behind trusted closed doors more information than they would. Um, And again, trust is so important in our industry, it is the currency of security. So we do have those forums. There's now more newsletters and you know shows, uh, podcasts and video casts where we security professionals are sharing and are much more open. And it's YouTube not where we need to like be, Matthew. though. We need to do this much, much better. <laughs> the bad guys communicate and share and collaborate very well. Right. And the only way we're ever going to even just keep pace with the attackers is if we do better in communicating and sharing and collaborating
0: well said and in terms of resources i do want to bring up the Cybersecurity insights channel let me just put it up here so people could see it and you can uh, just go on this link or just google Cybersecurity insights you'll get matthew's channel it's full of great content all very professional and well done videos and obviously very insightful and informative. So
2: please go check check them out and uh, subscribe. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I have a lot of fun with those because it's a great opportunity for me to rant when I see something just <laughs> insane in my industry, which is often, um, or to tear apart, you know, a news event. Hey, you know, we saw an attack and I'm a strategist by nature. So what happens today is interesting, but I look at it from how is that going to affect dominoes falling over, right? How is that going to affect tomorrow and next day, next week, next year? What is the strategic impact to that and and how should we be maneuvering now? So it's, it's very cathartic for me to get that off of my chest.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so I want to just go back really
0: quickly to that number 207 days that it takes for an organization to identify that they've been breached why is that you know and Rajendra here hi Rajendra is saying that maybe they're really not looking for this breach so I think that's kind of obvious that maybe that's the reason why they are not uh, right not getting it oh and uh, uh, Matthew (laughs) we have a a nice follower here from Tanya my favorite videos are the ranting ones (laughs)
2: <laughs> I do get frustrated sometimes with my industry, so my apologies, but i'm I'm glad you're enjoying the rants as well. <laughs> um, so you know, back to that average day over two hundred, that actually has come down. Um, but keep in mind, some organizations aren't looking for those breaches. Uh, especially when we look at small and medium businesses, which account mm-hmm. for about half of the attacks out there, about half, of, I'm sorry, about half of the businesses out there, small and medium have experienced an attack, but they tend not to have the resources and they tend not to want to dive into cybersecurity. They they're, they really kind of want to push it off and they give themselves excuses, right? They say, oh, I'm not important enough to be attacked. Oh, nobody cares about me. They start telling them these you know, themselves these things until it actually happens. And we've got an axiom in our industry, which unfortunately holds true, right? Cybersecurity isn't relevant until it fails. And a lot of organizations really don't wanna invest, don't wanna think about it, don't want the headaches. You know, I'm not gonna worry about it until it comes crashing down on them. And now all of a sudden cybersecurity is really important to them because it's jeopardizing their business, the trust with their customers, their services, their capabilities. And for small and medium businesses, what we see is um, about 60% of the companies that do get hit with a cyber attack aren't in business within a year to two years later, right? So they fail to think ahead and then they suffer gravely for it. Now for larger organizations, because regulatory issues and industry best practices and expectations of stockholders and a, in a riot, and an increase in awareness and savviness by boards, we see a lot more investments in cybersecurity, which is a good thing. They're also targeted more. So that gets offset But that you know, 200 days, it's tough, even for the organizations that do have teams. In many cases, if you're in firefight mode, you're just worried about the attacks that are causing damage today. You're trying to put out the fires. And it's tough to stop doing that and allocate resources for the ones that you haven't detected yet. Right. So again, you've got to have a CISO that's got that leadership to go, yes, I am going to purposely pair off some of those firefighting resources to be able to look for the ones we haven't found yet. Because if you don't do that, you just stay in that rut of putting fires out. And again, some of these attackers, especially nation states, they are probably smarter than you. They have more resources than you. They have better planning and logistics and support than you. And they have the ability to go out and either purchase or discover zero days, right? Vulnerabilities that have never been identified. And Mm -hmm. you don't have a defense against that. Mm -hmm. So your adversaries, some of them at the top tier, are more capable than you to begin with. And they will work very hard to remain undetected. So again, and Matthew. That's why we never sleep.
0: In in the same <laughs> in the same white paper, IBM was mentioning that the whole life cycle of the breach is about 280 days. So the number of days from the moment the breach has been identified all the way until it's contained, and that yes. seems a lot, uh, <clears> definitely. <throat> but I would imagine for some of these uh, breaches that were done in a way that has never been done this way before probably takes time to uncover and find the, the fix there. But what's the motivation really of a nation or a company or, well, not a company, but a, uh, an individual, a group of individuals to try and hack something? Is it for financial gains? Is it to steal, you know, secrets? What is it? Is it yes, just yes, to cause yes. harm?
2: And it can also be companies, by the way. So when we look in at the, we call them threat agents, right? These are the threat actors. And I'm part of a think tank. I've been part of a think tank for, for uh, actually almost 20 years now uh, that started at, at Intel. And we looked at the different threat actors. And we were able to kind of bucket them into archetypes. So, if you look at nation state actors, or you look at cyber criminals, or you look at data harvesters, you look at uh, disgruntled employees, right? Each one of those archetypes has a certain skill set, a certain access, a certain willingness to break the law, certain amounts of resources and patience, and, and willingness to, to collaborate amongst themselves. And when you look at those archetypes, they have different motivations. For example, cyber criminals. And cyber criminal cyber crimes, you know, impacting the world in the trillions of dollars, right? Some estimates are as high as six trillion dollars for cyber crime. Cyber criminals, that archetype is motivated by personal financial gain. That's what they're motivated by. They want the money, they don't care who they're attacking as long as they get the money. That's their objective, right? And they tend to follow the path of least resistance, the easiest targets out there. Okay, let's go after them. Uh, if you look at data miners and you could think of think of like reporters um, or people that are trying to gather just vast amounts of data, right um, their motivation is that information. They want certain insights. They're not trying to cause damage. they're not trying to to necessarily you know extort for money. They want the information. okay.
0: Mm-hmm. What is it? State do they want that information to use it for their <clears throat> own projects, or even sell it to another third party? That
2: might do well, something it else. It depends, with right? If they are selling open source data, it's not considered a crime, right? So if I go to your web page. And I basically just scrape it all, grab all that information, and I do that to a whole bunch of web pages and do some analysis on it. It's perfectly legal for me to then sell that information, right? It's open source information. We wouldn't consider that a cyber criminal, but they would be, you know, doing it for potentially money, reputation, you know, other reasons. Uh, if they're stealing data, data that you don't have, your private data, for example, and doing that, we would consider them a cyber criminal. And again, the motivation is money, uh, personal gain. The methods may be different. Uh, Nation states, for example, can have a couple of different methods. One, it tends to be about pushing policy, right? Just as military force is a means of pushing policy. uh, And some nation states will actually use it to gain hard currency. Typically, those countries that are embargoed by the rest of the world, they're using cybercrime, right? Their national forces, cyber forces, to steal funds, hard currency, to mm-hmm. bolster their regimes. So there's lots of different reasons. And, and even other companies may be attacking one another for industrial espionage. And there are some countries that do it for economic espionage. So there's all sorts of different reasons. There's not any shortage of motivation or methods to to get to those end results.
1: You know, Great. someone from Hollywood might just come to one to your door one day and say, "Can you please collaborate on a movie?" I, think so. <laughs> I would with love us? to. Yes! <laughs> yes, yes. Everyone, Matthew's <laughs> open to collaborating <laughs> with movie, the movie industry.
0: <laughs> the NYCISO. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rajendra here is asking: Is there a list, such as list of you know nations, companies that are are creating these harmful attacks? Uh, is there anything circulating?
2: There are. So, um, for nation states, uh, typically they're they're labeled APTs, right? Advanced persistent threats. And each of the big security companies maintains a list. So, if you want to go out to FireEye or CrowdStrike, you can see the different APTs that they follow. Now, there's not a perfect naming standard. So one security company may name a particular group one name and another one may call it another. So there's aliases as well. And if you go out to different government agencies, the United States and the UK and a few other countries um, actually also will list these these nations that uh, are actively attacking for different types of motivations. And they'll attribute certain attacks to certain countries, uh, whether it be their direct people or simply that country sponsoring, financially sponsoring a third party to go off and do their attacks. So there are lists out there. There is not a single list because we don't all agree that it's the same you know, organization, attacker, country. It's really hard to do attribution because attackers can hide or masquerade as others. And we see that all the time. Right. right, If you're an attacker, if you're from country A, you don't want to ever be identified. So you're going to try and make yourself look like country B. So they get blamed if, if, if you get discovered. Right. So there's all these spy games that many countries are very good at in, you know, for, for years of the Cold War, they're applying those tactics and techniques to the digital world to masquerade themselves. Hmm.
0: That's fascinating. So to masquerade as, let's say, the French, would you program in French instead? (laughs) I'm kidding. Now I would imagine. I would imagine Matthew that mention croissant
1: somewhere. (laughs) Yes.
0: So I would imagine even uh, even most of the first world countries they play a role in this and they're attacking themselves, right? I would imagine U.S. is one of the biggest culprits and U.K. and right. So there's no. I mean, depending on what side of the fence you're on. You might consider it uh, bad or good
2: type of a thing, right? Absolutely, you know. Think about the intelligence agencies of any you know major country out there. This is a natural extension of their capabilities in providing intelligence and maybe even interdicting things, um, causing disruption or influence. Yes. Uh, every major country out there and many even small countries, countries that don't have the ability for a major military force, uh, are uh, you know investing heavily because it's a game changer. You don't have to have a massive budget or or military presence to be a formidable adversary here and to be able to get the benefits of a cyber force. So this is kind of like the handgun in the Wild West. Anybody that had it was now dangerous and it's not that expensive. So we're seeing all major countries, you know, have a capability to do this uh, and they need it for defense anyway, because other countries are going to use it against them. We also see a number of countries out there disturbingly using these types of technologies against their own population, against uprisings and and things to be able to identify, you know, who's protesting or who's causing Uh, waves that that may not be supportive of the current government or regime. And unfortunately, um, some countries have used this to the great detriment of their own population.
0: Very interesting. And Rajendra Mm -hmm. uh, was saying here that one way is to use language, even bot language. I'm not
2: sure exactly what what you mean by that. Oh, he's talking about um, how to implicate other countries, right, or Uh. other nations. If you're going to write code, and I want to implicate again, you you had mentioned France. I might put in some French words in that code. I may chose or choose to host it on a French server or a server that has a French name or goes through a French subnet or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So I can then implicate them it's all just ones and zeros. It's all just bits and bytes. So it's easy to do that. And I always caution people whenever a new attack comes out within the first 24 hours of something being detected, you always have some people out there going, oh, well, it's this or it's this, you know, and they try and attribute. It can take months or years to truly attribute an attack to the right people, so I always caution people. Uh, you know, it's great that they're saying it's probably this or that. Take it with a grain of salt, because nobody really knows yet. It takes a mm-hmm. lot of investigation to get past those false flags and and breadcrumbs that were placed there intentionally. Very interesting.
0: Okay, I want to bring it down a little bit to the company level, individual level, and start with this question first that we have up. So what percentage of cybersecurity breaches are caused by human error? Is it 79%, 95%, or 56%? Diana, what do you think?
1: Oh, human are perfect.
0: <laughs> so 56 or <laughs> it's not even in the list of answers. Human are perfectly 0%.
2: flawed?
0: Is, is that what you were saying? Like, I didn't oh, quite catch yes, yes, the last you, word.
1: Yeah, yeah, you might
0: be right. That's what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> So the answer, maybe surprisingly or not, it's, come on, 95% of cybersecurity breaches. And this is according to, uh, let me see my notes here. Where are they? But I think it was Veronis or uh, somebody, where are you? Uh, Cybint which uh, I haven't heard of them before, but Cybint mm-hmm. was mentioning it's 95% of cybersecurity breaches are caused by human
2: error. Absolutely. And we see this again and again, there's, me- there's quite a bit of research done on this. Um, and we talked a little bit about, especially cyber criminals, right? If you're a cyber criminal, you just wanna get money. Therefore you're gonna go after the easiest target and, and the easiest method. And as it turns out to hack a firewall or, or to find a zero day, that's pretty tough. It's a whole lot easier to send out an email or, or a million emails with, you know, some uh, Trojan attached or, um, you know, do some type of phishing attack or simply ask somebody for their credentials. People will respond. <laughs> people will click on that link. People will do that. And so as it turns out, people are the easiest path in most cases. We see most major attacks, actually most attacks, period, they involve some level of social engineering. And it's not by chance, it's just the easiest way of doing it. And I can have a stack of firewalls and massive technology you know, protective, uh, protecting an organization, but it just takes one employee to start clicking on things or, or respond. Human nature and that behaviors is a key component to cybersecurity. In fact, if you think as cybersecurity is as a coin, one side is that technology. The other side are those behaviors. It's what the humans do. And between it, kind of the edge is the process that connects them. We can't do cybersecurity without addressing all of it. And right now, people are the weakest link.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So do we need more education?
2: Yes, we absolutely do. And that's one of the the components to a very mature cybersecurity program is making sure the employees and your suppliers and partners and vendors are security savvy. Because if you can raise that, you enhance your security across the board. And it isn't all that expensive. It takes a little bit of time. And so organizations are sometimes a little hesitant. Wait, we're all busy. We don't have time to do security training. Well, believe me, it's a lot more affordable to do that than to respond to a major breach or an outage or downtime, loss of your IP, your mm-hmm. customers abandoning you, things of that sort. And so again, you know, best practice in the industry is to have a good program like that, continually educate, test, reward good behaviors, and build a culture of smart, well-aware employees that will not only do the right thing, but when they do the wrong thing, actively report it. Hmm. And that's, that's also good. really tough because yes. people are sometimes worried, I'm going to get in trouble. I clicked on that. Uh, I'm just going to delete it and it nobody will act, know. Yeah. And bad and things I, happen. And but I saw if that you can train of... your employees to go, hey, I, I screwed up. Yeah. And for the first contact with the security person, that first contact, if it's me, the first words are out of my mouth are, thank you. Thank hmm. you for letting me know thank you. You're not in trouble. Show me what you did. And so that we can address it and we can fix it. We don't want everybody else to be impacted. You're doing the right thing by letting me know. Thank right. you.
0: That's a very good point. I noticed that in a few organizations that they're making that their key key point, notify us as soon as possible. You're not going to get in trouble. Just notify us yes. as soon as possible. You know, I, I worked for this company a few years ago and, um, They got hacked because this one individual clicked on a link that got in an email, even though it had, you know, warning, external resource, blah, 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 whatever, and uh, they got their files locked, you know, the whole ransomware, they actually had to pay because they didn't have backups, so they they had to pay. And the, uh, the hackers were nice enough that they actually, you know, respected the award and Unlock their it files means? and th- that's fine. So nice. Yeah, they were ethical hackers.
2: Uh, but <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, no, let's not confuse that. There yes, are ethical yes, yes. hackers. I, I, <laughs> that person as, is friendly. That person may, but they're as not. As soon ethical. as I they're, said they're that, they're still I thought, criminal. No. Yeah, <laughs> they just yes. offer really good support. That's all. Yes,
0: but uh, one thing I wanted to mention: they they asked her, um, "Why did you click on the link? Like you knew it was sort of fishy yeah. email." Yeah. Why did he click on it? And she said, well, it said it was from our president and he emailed me personally, like I had to click on it. Wow. So it's like that psychological thing, I guess, that yep. uh, works on some people, like you mentioned. We have a question here from Tanya. So the path of least resistance is social engineering, like you said before. That's why security awareness training on a regular basis is necessary. What are your thoughts on the types of training for non-cyber security individuals. So I would imagine those that are not in the field.
2: Yes. Um, So really, it, it kind of falls into two aspects. First off, if you're talking to an audience that isn't concerned about cybersecurity, or no, that's not my field, not my problem, not my issue, the first step is to make it relevant to them. And, you know, I've, I've gone through this for, for many decades. If I'm talking to a finance person and they're like, no, security isn't my thing. That's IT. That's cybersecurity. I, I, I deal with finance. That's, that's just what I do. And I'll sit down and talk with them and go, well, you know, are you concerned that somebody's going to change your data? Well, yeah, I don't want anybody changing my finance numbers, right? <laughs> okay, well, that's kind of important. And you have a role to play. And not only you, but the employee next to you does too because if you click on something or an attacker comes in and it affects your neighbor, it could affect your work. It could delete your files, right? Your project could disappear. Your customer that you service could abandon the company and it takes everybody to do. And once they realize, wow, I could be affected, my work, my files. And oh, by the way, do you take your laptop home? Well, yeah. Okay, well, when you plug into your home network, you may actually infect the rest of your computers. And so your personal files, your personal pictures, your PCs at home could also then suffer. Well, no, I don't want that. Great, I don't want that either. Let's work together, right? So you have to, first off, make it relevant to them. Mm -hmm. If it's not relevant to them, nothing you tell them will sink in. It's just, okay, keep talking, you're done, I'm done. Um, So once you've established that, then work with them at their level to figure out, all right, what amount of training is right for them, right? What do you do in your day job? What, do you, you know, what access do you have? Let's start getting you more savvy. And what we teach you here for work, you can then apply that to home. So you can be even more secure there as well. So, you know, and and it's a progression. You can't make somebody an expert in an hour or even in an eight-hour workshop or even in a weekly workshop. It takes a while. So you have to choose what's most relevant to them as well from a training perspective.
0: Thank you. And that brings us to the third question that we have here. (laughs) And that's what percentage of of Americans, and sorry, the survey was just... uh, addressing Americans, what percentage of Americans don't know what steps to take in the event of a data breach? 81%, 56%, or 75%? What do you think? So this this comes from uh, Veronis, and
2: they estimate it's 56%. I'm going to challenge that and say it's 100%. (laughs) Even in the security (laughs) world, and we have processes and everything, but every time it's different. Do we absolutely know 100% of what to do? No, right? And the average person doesn't either. But you know, if you're an employee and, and something happens, again, report it. And for the security teams, you always have to stay fluid and bring in the experts. Uh, if it's something you've never encountered before, reach out. Reach out to your community. Reach out to professional services. Reach out to experts and help because it's tough and time matters. From the moment that you detect something going on, it now becomes a race. And especially if the attacker, the attacker may notice when they get detected. So they may have been moving very slowly to remain stealthy. But the moment that they get detected, it's time to move fast. I'm going to grab everything. I'm going to burn whatever I want to burn down. I'm going to do whatever I need to do. But now I'm going to move fast. So it's very important from a crisis response perspective to make sure you do have your processes, to make sure you do have them well worked in, right? Everybody knows their role. Everybody can be proficient and it's a race and you don't want to lose that race, right? So so
0: then is it the same on the other side that when you identify a breach, you also want to be stealthy not to alert the one that breached you?
2: If possible, yes. But again, everyone's a little different. If you've noticed that they've breached or gained access to your most important data, your most sensitive data, you need to sever that right now. And so many times you'll do that. If on the other hand, you're using a honeypot, right? Which is, a, it's, it's just a means to kind of lure, it's, it's an artificial environment to lure the attackers into. And it can be something as simple as a fake email account, or it can be something as complex as an entirely mirrored environment, a complete environment with servers and web pages and databases and fake users and everything else. It's constantly moving, right? It can be anything, but you detect them in there, they can't really cause harm yet. And so you would wanna let them, okay, let's see what they're gonna do next. Right. So it really depends on the situation and it comes down to that crisis manager to make those decisions. Um, You know, we've got what are called cert teams, computer emergency response teams uh, within the industry and large organizations will have a team, in many cases, a dedicated team of experts that that's all they do. They deal with the different crises and breaches all day long. Um, I was you know, Intel's first incident commander, which is the, the, the top person for the cert team. And so whenever the company was attacked, I assembled my group and I made those decisions. And that incident commander has to make that call. Do we shut things off now and alert the bad guys? Um, and we may only know part of them. Do we let it play out a little bit to see what they're really going after, so we know we can get ahead of them? Right? It just—it all depends. Every situation is different. It's an intelligent attacker. You have to be fluid with them. It's a chess game.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And I wonder, Matthew, what what uh, what sort of people do you work with from a skills perspective? Do you work with you know data scientists, uh, machine learning experts? For example, that might help uh, the cybersecurity team develop techniques to identify things quicker or create those fake, uh, those honeypots, like you mentioned, or it's all
2: outsourced by external services that provide us stuff or? We work with everybody, right? We work from the C-suite and the board all the way down to all have a conversation with the janitor. Seriously, I will. Um, but when it comes to skill sets right um, a lot of the technology a lot of the folks within the IT organizations that maintain operations um, or engineering or architects that are developing new products or, or new capabilities you're definitely working with them uh, in the industry you're working with the new and innovative kind of product vendors that are coming up with new ideas that that can help do this right AI MLDL for example is, a hot new tool and capability that both the attackers as well as the security folks are trying to leverage for their benefit. So yes, you know, we work with those types of uh, technologists. We also work with uh, behavioralists, psychologists, sociologists, Uh, the, the behavioral aspects that we were just talking about before, right? How do we communicate? Well, how do we train Uh, employees? How do we get them to be advocates of security? There's a lot of psychology around that and sociology around that, right? Getting groups to elevate, uh, gamification, things of that sort. So we're all over the board and we still also have to uh, worry about the physical security. And that's why I'm going to talk with the janitor. I want to know if they find USB drives left on desks. I want to know if they file, you know, find uh, secure cabinets unlocked. I want to know because that's important as well. So we work with everybody. We should um, anywhere there is something of value, we need to be involved, especially if it has any ties to digital capabilities. It's a massive scope.
1: It is. That's amazing. I am. I am curious. Um, I, I guess that some of these attacks or some of these you know, cybersecurity um, aspects, there are some patterns, right? In, mm-hmm. in what happens, but there's some, always something new, I guess, right? So something that yes. is newly invented. So if you discover something like this and are able to solve it, do you share it with others as well? Yeah. Um,
2: I do because I, I I realize that we all have to be working together, and most of the major professional security companies do exactly the same thing, and it hasn't always been that case um, you know early on when a security company found a hack or or, or found something interesting or a major vulnerability they felt that it was a competitive advantage. So they kept it secret. They would you know, prepare a whole bunch of research and white papers and everything and marketing materials, and they would get it all ready for a formal release right? because they wanted to show how they were better than their competitors. And that put a huge lag time. That mm-hmm. could put months before the world knew that there was some new type of an attack and then they would release it and say okay we're better than everybody. But that has evolved and we've seen responsible companies now come out very quickly and report it to the you know the software vendor or hardware vendor or whatever and let them know very early on, hey we see something here. So I'll give you an example, one of the biggest attacks and I've I've labeled it the attack of the decade, right, early on uh, was the SolarWinds hack. And this was actually discovered by FireEye, one of the big names in the industry, very well respected. I know the folks over there. I know the CISO, uh, former CISO, um, a great organization. And they actually found that their tools were hacked, right? They've got security tools and hacking tools that they use. Their tools were hacked and they didn't know why, but they released it. They let their customers know, hey, for some reason, somehow we got breached and some of our tools are out and they started working with them a separate team tried to figure out, well, how did we get hacked? And what they found was a problem with this SolarWinds vendor. And as soon as they found that, they immediately went to Microsoft because it was tied into the operating system. And there were some um, you know, files that kind of needed to be torn apart. And so they started working with Microsoft back and forth, and they immediately announced it to the world. Uh, very very quickly and they also let solarwinds know as well hey there's a problem And solarwinds said okay you know i'm going to help you know i i, I know this code as, as well and everybody started working together very quickly and you know this particular uh, you know hack vulner- exploitation affected almost all of the fortune 500 companies it made vulnerable all of the major telecoms in the united states it made vulnerable huge SWAS of our government, including the White House and Department of Defense and so forth. Wow. Now, not all of them were actively hacked, but all of them, because of this vulnerability, were exposed. So in each organization that had to go in and figure, okay, I was exposed. Did the bad guy actually use that to get in and disrupt? And we're still trying to figure that out in the industry months and months later. So, you know, right now we're seeing A lot more communication and a lot more openness when something bad happens. And it's professional groups like Microsoft, Google, Google Zero's uh, team, you know, just announced some great things. Um, uh, You know, FireEye and, and other security organizations are communicating early. And the earlier we get that information, the better off we are because we can start looking. Every organization out there can start looking, and the companies can start developing patches and fixes that again can be rolled out. So it takes teamwork, it really does. And sometimes you have to offset some of the business opportunities, you know, for the greater good.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Thank you very much for saying that. I think that applies to every single field. <laughs> and we we don't have this, this mentality that, you know, high tide raises, raises all boats basically and um, yeah. communicating with you, yeah. Um, I, I'm very curious, is there any um, you know, case in, in the past that stands out for you, something that you found very interesting or very challenging that you would like to share with us?
2: Pick I mean, I know week. it's been Pick hundreds, thousands of um, <laughs> you know, the, the solar wind hack, it really is kind of the attack of the decade. Um, nation state came in and was able to use, you know, exploit a particular vulnerability in a tool that was widespread. You know, FireEye was using it. Um, You know, most of the Fortune 500 companies. It was like 465 of the uh, Fortune 500 were using this tool, and it opened opened them up to being exploited. So, and it it raised an issue called supply chain security. And we've been warning the industry about this, right? All the tools that you use, and services that you use, and even security products that you use, um, they if they're hacked, you're exposed and you may not know it and so you really have to understand how secure is this product or is this company or is this service and we're just we don't have the tools or processes to properly vet them and this is a, this is a brand new field that this year we are focusing because of the solar winds hack because it was so grievous uh, we're now trying to figure out as an industry how do we get better at this how do we truly vet and understand that not only when I install this product, it's safe, but every update that it brings in? Because the original SolarWinds product was fine, but the exploit came in as part of an update. They pushed an update for their product, which most companies do. Okay, great. But it had a Trojan in there that basically allowed the exploitation of whoever downloaded that patch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got some big challenges. Um, uh, Google's Project Zero, just a few days ago, about a week week and a half ago, announced that they identified an attacker um, that used seven zero day attacks. And they attributed it to this to the, to the same attacker that a few months earlier used four others. So this one attacker used 11 zero day attacks and chained them together. Just to find one zero day is impressive. Right? But to be able to acquire or identify 11 zero day attacks, vulnerabilities that nobody knew existed and chain them wow. together, this allowed the attacker to exploit and undermine the security of fully patched Windows, Android and iOS systems. Phenomenal, we've never seen that in the industry and only nation states have those types of resources. Some people think, oh, well, it's a nation state. I'm a small company. I'm a business. I'm an individual. They're not going to target me. But what you're not understanding is anytime that there's an exploit or a vulnerability, right? And it goes out into the wild, everybody grabs it, including cyber criminals and everybody else. They tear it apart and they will use pieces of it for their malware, for their attacks, so yes, this was developed by a nation state or identified or purchased by a nation state, but now it's in the open and your common cyber criminal, your common ransomware person, right, attacker may use a piece of that that does attack you at home, that does attack your smaller medium business, that is going to be used against corporation or power utilities or telecommunications or the nuclear power site, right? So it does Cascade down and impact every single one of us. But the amount of money that's flowing into research like that is mind boggling. Wow. And at the same time, our consumption, our hunger for digital technology only rises, forcing more technology out faster that isn't fully vetted, that isn't well secured, that creates more opportunities for the bad guys. So it becomes wow. a vicious cycle. Again, that's why we don't sleep. <laughs> That's <right>. we <laughs> it's just a about lot of coffee. coffee. <laughs> it's just more and more coffee. That's all it is. Matthew,
0: one last question uh, from me as we're coming to a, an end here, and it might be a strange question, but as you're seeing all these all these attacks and all these different ways of infiltrating and breaching, do you come to appreciate, you know, the other side, the, like the intellect that comes from the other side? <laughs> And I'm also wondering, are there also people that sort of switch sides and, you know, become good good agents?
2: That's a great question. So I'm probably one in the few of my few people in my industry that truly appreciates and respects the attackers. I've seen what they can do. I understand how they communicate and collaborate and share and work for each other. I've seen on chat boards where one hacker is struggling with code or trying to hack something and another hacker will jump in and go, here, let me help you out. That doesn't happen in our industry, right? (laughs) The good guys aren't doing that. And that some of these attackers are truly brilliant, brilliant, and they're creative, You know, some of the the spyware, some of the social engineering are really good and they can even fool the professional. So even though I don't like them and they are my enemy, let's make no mistake about it. I am here to stop them. And if possible, get them arrested and put behind bars. That is my job. That is my passion. And that will always be my goal. But that doesn't mean I can't respect them because they are good. Right. They are very good at what they do. And if you underestimate them, they're going to win the day. Hmm. So, yes, I do respect them and I want to understand them. And I'm fine even in conversing with them because I want to learn. I want to learn what are their capabilities? What are their next targets? So I'm fine in conversing with them. Um, There is isn't anger there. This is in my job. It's a profession. I'm here to take them down, to stop them, to impede them, to dissuade them, deter them. Um, and sometimes clean up after them. Uh, but I don't take it personally and I hope they don't take it personally that I'm here to do that to them. If they do, okay. You know, uh, but it's important to understand your enemy, their capabilities, their motivations and everything else. And it's perfectly fine in my book to respect somebody that's really good at what they're doing. Uh, it takes skill. So yes. Um, now, the second part of your question, I forgot the second part of your question.
0: Uh, if they ever
2: switch sides, if they, you know. Yes, yes. You know,
1: like in Catch Me If You Can. <clears throat> yeah,
2: <laughs> Many times they do. And we see some people, you know, we've got, uh, and the terms are are probably fading from the industry. We've got, you know, white hats, black hats, and and gray hats. And white hats. And we're probably going to change the terminology because we don't want it associated with race or anything like that. So we're trying to be more sensitive. But you've got people that are just the good guys, the cyber defenders. And that's all they do. That's all they're ever going to do. You've got the the ones that are causing harm, and that's all they're ever going to do. So that's the other side of the spectrum. And then you've got this gray area in between. And you've got some people that will, you know, mostly do the good stuff. But if the right situation comes along, they might do something more malicious or harmful. And we also see um, people on the malicious side, sometimes they decide to switch sides. And sometimes just on a given day, they may choose to do something that actually benefits organizations, uh, benefits the security sometimes it's because it's good natured and they actually want to help other times it's just to kind of help themselves we've seen for example um wars happen between worm writers uh you know malicious code that that goes off and and automatically infects systems where we've seen one worm infect a community and another hacker come in and infect those systems and shut them off because it's a competitor to them and actually, you know, remove that first worm and patch the system so that worm provider or that bot herder, you know, is not as much of a competitor. So we've seen interesting things happen like that as well. You just never know what's going to happen. It's 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 chaos in, in a beautiful, semi-orchestrated way. But it's all people, right? We all have motivations, whether we're on one side or the other, and we all have creative ideas and get motivated by different things. So it's that's fantastic every day, every single day. That's fantastic. You so you're know, solving
1: like- puzzles every single day. <laughs> it's like you're playing chess. <laughs> every it is, single day. and a lot of
2: people kind of you know use the analogy um, of either chess or warfare, combat. In some days, it really feels like combat. Uh, and as you're maneuvering, the enemy's maneuvering as well. As you block one thing, they're finding a way around and you've got to figure out where they went. And, you know, it is a constant maneuvering between you and them. Right.
0: Matthew, it's like fun. Dana said I love it. in the beginning of the <laughs> show, exactly. And and <laughs> that really shows. Uh, and, you know, thank you so much for your time and for all your, your cybersecurity insights. And like Dana mentioned in the beginning of the show, now, I want to work in cybersecurity <laughs> yeah.
2: because you're making Good. it so we relevant need you. We interesting. need as many smart, passionate people as possible. <laughs> yes. I've done my job here. Yes. Yes.
1: Uh, yes. You've, you've done it so, so well.
0: So again, I do want to encourage people to check out your YouTube channel. Just uh, Google cybersecurity insights or YouTube, I guess, if that's a verb, uh, cybersecurity insights, you'll find Matthew's channel. It's full of amazing content. Uh, such as the one that you've just witnessed, and definitely follow him on LinkedIn. I mean, he doesn't just have 190 thousand followers for nothing. He puts <laughs> a lot of great sure. content out there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so so much. Thank Matthews. you for it's having such me. a pleasure. I, I, I really appreciate it. It's a great conversation. so much, so much smarter, <laughs> and so much more motivated to to learn more about this because I don't think I'm I'm doing a good job when it comes to cybersecurity with my own stuff, personally speaking. We all need
0: to learn more. Yes. Yes.
1: Thank you very much, everyone, for being here. And happy Easter to people who are celebrating Easter this week. And we'll see you next week. Bye, Bye, everybody.